The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith." And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word, we always make sure that we are in fellowship with the Lord. Scripture teaches that we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone. At the instant of salvation, we are entered into a permanent and eternal union with the Lord Jesus Christ. But in terms of our day-to-day spiritual life, our day-to-day Christian life, our day-to-day walk with the Lord, we often and frequently sin. We are still sinners after salvation. There is nothing that we can do to uh, end the sin nature. We continue to struggle with sin until the day we die. But every time we sin, whether it is a large sin or uh, a small sin, whether it is a known sin or unknown sin, at the instant of sin, our fellowship with the Lord is broken. We grieve and quench the Holy Spirit. And the Scripture says we no longer walk in the light but in darkness, and we're no longer walking according to the Spirit but according to the sin nature. How do we recover? We recover simply by acknowledging our sins to God the Father. It is not a matter of acknowledging those sins to any other person. The Scripture does not authorize confession to any human being at any time under any circumstance. Confession for sin is directed to God the Father, according to 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When David sinned his great sin of adultery with Bathsheba and then the sin of uh, conspiring to murder and bringing about the murder of her husband Uriah, when he came to that point of confession, as stated in Psalm 51, He said, Lord, against thee and thee only have I sinned. Even though he had the sin involved Bathsheba, and it certainly caused the death of her husband, and there were many human consequences to that sin and many human beings who were affected by that sin, sin is a matter of violation of God's standard and God's character, not a human standard or human law. So when we sin... It is a violation of God's standard, and therefore confession is to be to God alone and not to any human being under any circumstances whatsoever. So we always begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give everyone the opportunity and the privacy of their individual priesthood to admit or acknowledge their sin to God the Father. And we know that at the instant of admission of sin, 
we are forgiven. As the sin is separated from us as far as the east is from the west. There is no reason to think about it anymore, to be guilty about it. In fact, if you're guilty about it, basically what you're saying is that God really didn't forgive me, so I have to do something to add to my guilt. I have to, uh, I mean, add to my confession. I have to add remorse or guilt or feeling sorry for my sin or some other uh, human factor which nullifies grace. Grace means God does all the work and we simply accept it on the basis of the completed and finished work of Christ on the cross. So we have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together as a body of believers in the Lord Jesus Christ to study your word. As Jesus prayed to you in the high priestly prayer of John 17, sanctify them in truth, thy word is truth. It is through the your word as it is studied, as it is uh, accepted and believed into our soul under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit, and by walking by the Holy Spirit, that we are enabled to grow and advance in our spiritual life. Spirituality is not a matter of emotion. It's not a matter of ritual. It's not a matter of morality. It is a matter of uh, obedience to your word under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. Now, Father, we thank you that we have this privilege, the freedom that we have in this nation. We continue to pray for our president for the congressional leaders, for the military leaders involved in this war on terrorism, that you would give them wisdom, that you would continuously remind them that our freedoms are gained and maintained on the principle of military victory, that it is the military that has always gained and always preserved in each generation the freedoms that we have. They have been dearly bought with the blood, the lives, the sacrifices of our ancestors. Father, we pray that you would continue to give our leaders the wisdom they need, the courage they need to uh, press this war to its fullest extent in order that we might continue to maintain those freedoms for future generations. Now, Father, as we gather together to worship you in the highest form of worship through the study of your word, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and through your Holy Spirit apply them. We make we pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, and we will uh, continue our study here as we wrap up the conclusion or begin to wrap up the conclusion of this first epistle of the Apostle John. We covered the first uh, two and a half verses last week, and we're going to have a little summary this morning before we go any further. In verse 1 we read, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, Christos is the term anointed one in the Greek. It is equivalent to the Hebrew word Mashiach, meaning the anointed one, and relates to his role as the promised Messiah from the Old Testament. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Messiah is born of God. It's a perfect Passive indicative indicating that regeneration is not something that we produce, but regeneration is that which is produced by God in our lives. 
This takes place at the moment of faith alone in Christ alone. Every single individual in the human race is born a sinner. That means that we have minus R. We lack righteousness. Isaiah 64, 6 says that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. That means that the best that man can do is still considered filthy rags in the sight of God. It doesn't stand up to his absolute standard, which is perfect righteousness. God demands absolute perfection. God, who is perfect, cannot have fellowship, cannot have a relationship with anyone who falls short of his righteousness. It doesn't take any particular egregious act or heinous sin in order to violate that righteousness. In fact, the original sin of Adam, which took place in the Garden of Eden, had to do with eating a piece of fruit. Now, I would suggest that there's not anybody here that if you were going to list 15 or 20 or 30 horrible sins, that eating fruit would make your list, except it was the eating of that fruit that was an act of disobedience to God because God had prohibited that act. And it was in the act of disobedience to the authority of God that brought this human race into a status of sin and minus R. This means that every single human being since Adam sinned is born inherently a sinner. We are evil by nature according to the Scriptures. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't do good things. In fact, the Hebrew word ra looks like this, R-A, with sort of a hard, soft guttural mark there. Ra has to do with can mean several things. It can refer to overt sin in terms of that which is a violation of the law of God. It can refer to that which has, which is good, that, that we think is good, but because it is captured in a false system, it leads people into error. For example, if someone teaches that that all religions are basically the same and take people to God, and they teach a great system of morality, and that because all men are brothers, and all the entire human race should live in peace with one another because we're all brothers under the fatherhood of God, and all you have to do to have a wonderful relationship with God is to be good or to engage in certain ritual, uh, we would not normally classify that as evil. And yet, since the Scripture says that there is only one way to have a relationship with God, and that is by faith alone in Christ alone, and that anything distinct from that will never produce a relationship with God, and in fact will end up, end up taking that person to eternal condemnation, nothing could be more evil, more sinister, than to teach simple morality and human religion because it does not lead to the truth. Scripture says that he who believes on him is not condemned, but the one who believes not is condemned already, because he has what? Committed some awful sin? No, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And then in Acts 4, we're told that it is only by that name that we have eternal life. So the Scripture stands completely contrary to all human viewpoint systems. The Word of God clearly teaches the exclusivity of Christianity. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
no one can come to the Father except by me. We'll see modern man comes along in his infinite wisdom, and he says, well, that's just... That's just arrogant. That's just too exclusive for God to have only one way. There's all kinds of different ways. People have all kinds of wonderful ideas about religion. And, oh, yeah, there are different ways of interpreting that in the Bible so that that doesn't have to mean exclusivity. The problem with that is that if you look at the way all of those other systems want to interpret the Bible, if you applied those same principles of interpretation to, let's say, something as simple as as how they interpret their telephone bill at the end of the month or how they interpret the instructions to fill out the their income tax return or how to fill out any legal document. If they followed those same principles of interpretation, they would be buried so far under the jail for committing so many numerous felonies that they would never see the light of day again. And the pro, you, you interpret the Bible on the same principles of interpretation that you apply to every other document in life, and that is a plain, literal, grammatical interpretation. And so when the Bible comes along and says there's only one mediator between God and man, you can't make that mean, oh, there's a whole series of mediators there's uh, various priests and various other intermediaries between God and man that you have to go through in order to have a relationship with God. No, the Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ is the only way to have a relationship with God. And at the point of believing, because Scripture says that's all that's required, it's believing. Simple act of belief. Belief means to accept something as true, that this is the truth, that Christ died on the cross for our sins. And so this is the point that that John is emphasizing. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Messiah has been born of God because that's what is required for the rebirth. And at the point of faith in Christ, at that instant what happens is, that God the Father imputes or credits to the individual the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, He who knew no sin, that's Jesus Christ, he was perfect, he was impeccable, there was no sin, he never committed a personal sin. Because of the virgin birth, he didn't have a sin nature, so he was born sinless and remained sinless, and he had perfect righteousness. He paid the penalty for our sins on the cross, and because he paid the penalty in our place as our substitute, because he said when it was all done, before he died physically, he said it's finished, it's complete, it's paid in full. There's nothing that can be added to it. You're feeling sorry for your sins doesn't add a thing. In fact, you try to feel sorry for your sins and impress God, that destroys faith. Morality doesn't help. In fact, the price, if we try to add anything to it, you're basically saying, Christ, you didn't do enough. I gotta add my good works to it. I have to add my emotion to it. I have to add, uh, feeling sorry to it. I have to add something to it. it. It's not enough just for you dying on the cross. And so, scripture teaches that if you add anything to the work of Christ, you destroy the work of Christ, nullify it, and you're not saved. It's faith alone in Christ. It's not faith plus ritual. 
You don't receive grace through going through ritual. You get it all at one shot at the cross when you put your faith alone in Christ alone. So that positive righteousness of Christ then, at the moment you express faith, is credited to your account so that when God looks at every human being, he looks at them as being plus R because that is not their righteousness. It is Christ's righteousness given to them at salvation. At the, when God the Father's perfect righteousness looks on the perfect righteousness of the individual who has put faith alone in Christ alone, he declares them to be just. That is why we say the Scripture teaches justification by faith alone. When God decrees that they are just and justified at that same instant, all of this takes place simultaneously, God creates a new human spirit. God the Holy Spirit creates and imparts to that individual a new human spirit so that they are born again. They are spiritually reborn. That is what is meant by the fact that whoever believes that Jesus is the Messiah has been born of God. Now, what happens is, as you go through time in your life, you're born, then at some stage between birth and death, somebody explains the gospel to you. And at that instant, you trust in Christ alone, and God takes that faith of a spiritually dead unbeliever and makes it effective for salvation, and the Holy Spirit then regenerates you. At that instant of regeneration, you recognize that Jesus was the Christ and that he was the Messiah. But you see, we all still have a sin nature. And so what happens is, after we uh, are saved for some time, there are some people who instead of advancing in their spiritual life and studying the Word and continuing to grow, what happens is they get they get off in their sin nature, uh, following the dictates of their sin nature, and they the Bible calls it backsliding or reversionism, and they reverse course so that they begin to live and act like an unbeliever. And one of the things that happened in the congregation that John is addressing is that there were some of these false teachers who had reversed course and were teaching false doctrine that were teaching that Jesus wasn't really the Son of God and that Jesus wasn't really the Messiah. And so they no longer believed that Jesus uh, was the Messiah. They did not believe that Jesus was the Christ. We're continuing to have problems with the overhead. I hope you can somehow make out some of this right. Apparently some sort of oily film has gotten on here and uh, making it difficult to write. Maybe if I change pens, perhaps it's just the pen. No, it's the... That didn't work. Well, we're trying. So what happened is that they were teaching that Jesus wasn't the Messiah. Now, that's the emphasis in John. John is not talking here about that initial stage of salvation in 1 John 5.1. Remember the entire context from 1 John 2.28 down through 5.3a is addressed to believers. In fact, the entire epistle is really addressed to believers in the issues of the spiritual life. And in the other two places, which we'll look at again before we finish this morning, where John has made other statements about what characterizes the, the person who is regenerate or born of God. He's not just talking about simple regeneration, but the person who is living in a manner that is consistent with that regeneration. Now, I went over this in some detail last time, probably confused a few people with the technical exegesis, but I wanted to get that 
make sure I got that on tape and that we had that available. The point of this, and I want to review it briefly for those of you who weren't here, those of you who might not have fully understood it last time, the point that he is making is that the person who is regenerate and living in light of their new birth as a member of the royal family of God continues to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah in contrast to these false teachers and the fact that they've rejected Christ as Messiah, no longer believe that, is indicative of the fact that they are now in carnality and now teaching false doctrine. Carnality means that they are operating on the basis of their sin nature, no longer walking in the light of God's word, no longer walking according to the Holy Spirit. Well, John goes on to make a second statement, and he says, uh, second, uh, second point, and it's the second half of verse 1, everyone who loves him who begot, him who begot is God the Father, also loves him who is begotten of him. That refers to the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone who loves the Father also loves him who is begotten of him. Now, this is an extremely important point in order to understand that first phrase. Because when John says everyone who loves God the Father also loves God the Son, that's his point. Just, just clarifying another terminology. We have to recognize that throughout the main part of this epistle, John has made the point that you don't love God just because you're saved. Just because you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ doesn't mean you love God because you have to know God to love Him. You cannot love someone unless you know them. Love is not, according to the Bible, just a feeling. Love is not to be confused with an emotion to certain kinds of warm, fuzzy attitudes that we have towards people. It is something quite different. And love for God, as we're going to see in verse 2, is exemplified by keeping his commandments. When we love God, and how do we know that we love the children of God? When we love God and keep his commandments. How do, we lo- how do we know we love God? We love Him and we keep His commandments. So love is exemplified through an objective standard of being obedient to His Word. To be obedient to His Word means you have to know His Word. To know His Word means you have to make that a priority in your study. For this we're told in 3a, for this is the love for God that we keep His commandments. Now that's not talking about salvation. Salvation is not by keeping his commandments. Salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. But spiritual growth and spiritual advance is by keeping his commandments. So we have to distinguish between that which is necessary for salvation and that which is necessary for spiritual advance. Now, at this point, I want to summarize the doctrine of love. Love has been a major theme in this section of 1 John, from 1 John 2.28 down through 1 John 3a. We have spent a lot of time covering this. We've covered a lot of points. But before we get out of the main body of this epistle and begin to address the conclusion, which begins at the, in the, with the second phrase in verse 3, before we get there, I want to summarize the doctrine of love. Summary of the doctrine of love. Under 11 points. Point number one. Love is one of the most misunderstood concepts in our culture. 
It is often and usually confused with certain feelings, certain emotions, or with certain sentiment. Some people equate love with sex. Other people today never equate love with sex. Others use the word so much that the word love that is so much that it becomes trivialized and loses its real meaning. Some people will tell just about anyone that they love them. This is something you parents need to drill into your daughters as they are maturing, and some of you single women need to understand this, and that is that some guys are going to say they love you at the drop of a hat, and they don't have a clue what that means, and yet as soon as you hear some guy say, I love you, you're going to get all kinds of warm, fuzzy feelings, and the next thing you know, you're going to get yourself in a relationship that is uh, going to bring a lot of trauma to you. So just because somebody tells you that they love you, in fact, if they tell you they love you too fast, you better take that as a warning sign to get out and run the other way just as fast as you can. Very few people today even have a uh, solid concept of what love is uh, without integrity, without virtue, and if they're not a believer, they really don't know what love is, as you will see from some of the passages that we'll look at. So first point we have to recognize is love is one of the most misunderstood concepts. So before we start talking about it, we have to make sure that we let the Bible define love and rather than let our experience define love. Point number two, in the New Testament, love is for the believer the highest expression of the spiritual life. Love is for the believer the highest expression for the spiritual life. Love summarizes the spiritual, uh, the, the adult spiritual life. Love summarizes the adult spiritual life. Spiritual infants don't love. They have not developed the, the spiritual character, the integrity, or the virtue necessary for there to be love. Just like a two or three year old child has certain sentimental feelings and attraction, loyalty to his parents, but that's not love. Love is based on a more mature understanding of life and a greater knowledge of the object of love. Point number three, love is the unique mark of the disciple in the New Testament. Not the believer, but the disciple. There's a distinction made in the New Testament between those who are disciples and those who are believers. A believer may not be a disciple. The term disciple means a student. It means a learner. It means somebody who is putting forth a tremendous amount of effort to fully understand everything that that the Word of God teaches. You can believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and you have eternal life. You're a child of God, but that doesn't mean you are a disciple. It may take four or five years before you wake up to the fact that Bible doctrine needs to be the most important thing in your life. It is your life. It is to, you, you're to live and breathe doctrine because until you conform your thinking to the Word of God as we're commanded in Romans 12:2, your life is still something you're living for yourself and not for the Lord Jesus Christ. So you can be a believer and not a disciple. And Jesus said in John 13:34 and 35, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another, and by this all men will know that you are my disciples. Not that you're believers, but that you're disciples. It's very important to understand that 
Jesus did not say love goes to every believer because not every believer is going to develop in the category, in their understanding of love for one another. So love is the unique mark of the disciple, John 13, 34, and 35. Now Jesus said in that commandment that we are to love one another even as I have loved you. So the standard for understanding divine love is what Jesus Christ is did for us on the cross. This is point number four. The greatest demonstration and definition of love is what, what took place on the cross. This is substantiated by a number of verses in 1 John. 1 John 3.16, John said, We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That is, in many ways, a restatement of Jesus' statement in John 13.34 and 35. How do we know love? We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. That is a visual image for what love is. You don't start understanding love by looking at the love you've experienced in your life. You don't start to understand love by going to the dictionary or reading the philosophers of, of uh, ethics. You understand love by going first to the cross to understand the person of Jesus Christ and the work that he performed there on our behalf as our substitute. That's one reason why we are having a short study for about uh, two or three months on Wednesday night on the doctrines of salvation and so that we can take some time to reflect a little more profoundly on the work that was done for us on the cross by Jesus Christ. In 1 John 4, 9, John says, By this the love of God was revealed or manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. He uses verbiage that is very similar to John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, or unique Son, that whosoever believes on him should not perish but have everlasting life. Notice in all of these passages, the issue is on belief. It's on faith. It's not on doing anything. It's not on any kind of ritual. It's not on any kind of observance. It's not being associated with the right church, the right organization, jumping through the right uh, spiritual hoop. It is only belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. Furthermore, this is just belief because Jesus Christ did it all. First John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. See, the initiative lies with him. He loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God loves us and desires that all men be saved, but not all are saved because some reject his love. They reject the cross. They try to do it on their own. What God is saying is there's no way you can do it on your own. You have to do it on, on the basis of what I have done for you. So the greatest demonstration and definition of love is what took place on the cross. It involved God's initiative in eternity past. Love is not passive. Love is active. It involved a sacrifice. This is what Jesus exemplifies in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Love is not merely the absence of mental attitude sins such as bitterness, jealousy, uh, vindictiveness or hatred or anger, but it is the presence of positively giving someone that which they need. 
on the in the parable of the Good Samaritan, he talks about this um, traveler who is beaten up along the side of the road, and two or three uh, righteous uh, leaders walk by, and they look at him, and they just basically ignore him. Uh, and then this Samaritan, who is considered the lowest of the low by the, by, uh, according to the Jewish social hierarchy, uh, the Samaritan comes along and he he treats him him well. He picks him up, he cleans him up, he fixes his wounds, and then he gives him of his clothes so that he has something to wear. So there is something to love that goes beyond just an absence of mental attitude sins, but a positive giving and a positive demonstration. And, in fact, it could include sacrifice for that which is the object of love. The object of love is not always uh, attractive. In fact, when the emphasis is on the attractiveness of the object, it's not biblical love. Biblical love puts the emphasis on the character of God, and not on the character of the object of love. God doesn't love us because we're lovable. Now, that may surprise some of you because you are so impressed with yourself, perhaps, or so self-absorbed that you think that God loves everybody because, frankly, you and the rest of the human race are just such wonderful people. But God said, the Scripture says that God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, and the word there indicates those who are in rebellion against his authority, that while we are sinners, that is, obnoxious to him, uh, Christ died as a substitute for us. Jesus Christ came to die on the cross for us, not because of who you are or who mankind is, but because of who, Jesus, who God is based on his his character. So that's how we understand love. Love has to be based on an unshakable, immutable foundation. Trouble with most people is their love is based on their own feelings, which change from day to day. Or love is based on the attractiveness of an object, which changes from day to day or year to year or decade to decade, whatever the case may be. You see, love has to be based on something that never changes for it to have any integrity or any value. And it's only the character of God that never changes. Fifth point. Christian love is evidenced by obedience to the word. It is not evidenced by feelings. If you're trying to gauge your own love by how you feel about somebody, you're going to be in trouble because there are some Christians that you're never going to feel very warmly toward. They have personalities that rub you wrong. They have uh, attitudes that uh, you don't care for. They have uh, done things that have particularly offended you and so you are always going to have difficulty having warm feelings toward them. Nevertheless, the Scripture says that we are to treat them in a certain manner, and that has to do with our understanding, therefore, of the character of God. But the only way you can understand the character of God is by studying his word and watching how God has interacted with man in human history, studying that interaction from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through Revelation chapter 22. It's only in the study of God and his interaction with undeserving uh, mankind that you begin to understand what his character is, and that's the character that undergirds love. 
And so to understand, understand love, you have to know his word. When we come to know his word, we understand there are certain mandates, certain requirements in his word. There are certain commandments and certain prohibitions. And as we come to understand those, we come to understand that those exemplify the standards of God. They, they, they provide the boundaries around that love of God. And that is why Jesus said, in John 14:15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. You see, Christian love is evidenced by obedience to the word. Jesus didn't say, if you love me, you're going to feel a certain way. Jesus didn't say, if you love me, then you're going to always have certain kinds of feelings towards other Christians. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. To keep his commandments, we have to know his commandments. To know his commandments, you have to study his commandments. You have to understand the difference between commandments that are directed to Israel in the Old Testament, commandments directed to specific individuals in the New Testament, and commandments that are addressed to church-age believers in the New Testament. That means you have to develop some understanding of hermeneutics. You have to develop some understanding of dispensations and that God works through different peoples at different eras in history. You have to understand something about the ebb and flow of human history as the outworking of God's plan in relationship to the angelic conflict. That means that to understand God's commandment, commandments, you have to understand a tremendous framework of theology, and that only comes by making it a priority in your life. You don't get there just by showing up at church once a week, once every couple of weeks, or once a month. In fact, it's hard to do just showing up twice on Sunday and then on, on Wednesday night. That's why we have the tape ministry that we do, is so that you can get the tapes and listen to them again and again. If you uh, weren't here uh, for certain series, then you can go back and get those series, and you can listen to them and put yourself in a position where every day, uh, even if it's for only 15 or 20 minutes, while you're driving to work, driving home from work, you can listen to a tape and let the Word of God begin to shape your thinking. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. In John 14:21, he said, he who has my commandments, we have them in the uh, completed canon of Scripture, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me shall be loved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. People say, well, I want to know more about God. Well, you start by studying the Word to a certain degree. It may be taking baby steps and understanding the Word, showing up at church once a week on Sunday morning for a while before it begins to dawn on you that it involves a little more than just a Sunday morning study. And as you grow and advance, Jesus says what happens is, as you grow and advance and you learn a few commandments, you begin to be obedient to those commandments. As that happens, your love for God begins to uh, grow and develop. Uh, God then uh, will discloses himself more. He says, he who is who loves me and who loves me shall be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. So you'll learn more and more about Jesus. You'll begin to understand more and more about the Lord. Things that were unclear at the beginning, things you didn't understand, things that perhaps seemed odd or contradictory, especially if you grew up in some sort of religious background where uh, you were taught a system of ritual or you weren't taught anything. Uh, you start reading the Bible and you'll see that, that actually things in the Bible seem to contradict uh, perhaps some things that you thought were part of Christianity. 
I'll never forget the time when uh, I was uh, involved in a small group Bible study uh, years ago as a pastor, and one of the uh, I was a home Bible study, and one of the men in the Bible study was the chairman of the deacons, and he was in his late 60s at the time and had been in this church since he was about 20. So he had been in that church for well over 40 years. And I challenged this Bible study group to to read the Bible through every for, for a year. Take a year and try to set yourself on a schedule and read the Bible through just so you have a basic framework for understanding the Word of God and understanding who's who and when they live and various relationships of people and just to have a basic concept and structure of what the Bible says. And I'll never forget the time he came to me and he said, Pastor, so, you know, I've been in this church for 40 years, and I really never understood that, that, the, that the Bible teaches some of the things it teaches, and it's completely different from some of the concepts I had about Christianity. And this was a man who had been exposed to pretty decent Bible teaching along the way, but he just had not taken the time to, to think it through or make it a real priority in his life. So as we advance, we will come to understand the word better and we will gain a greater understanding and disclosure of who Jesus Christ is. In 1 John 3.17, John expands on this and he makes a statement, whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his mind against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And we saw that that word abide again emphasizes relationship. How can this man, how can you claim to have a relationship with God and then turn your back on uh, some other believer who has a legitimate uh, physical or financial need? First John 3.18, John states, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue. Don't make it a matter of simple uh, profession, but in deed and truth. That is, in practice, application of God's word and truth. That is, according to the standard of God's word. So, point number five, all of this is point number five. Christian love is evidenced by obedience to the word of God. John 14.15, 14.21, 1 John 3.17 and 18. Point number five, those who love God love his word. You can't claim to love God if you don't love his word, because his word is his mind. First Corinthians 2.16 states that the word of God is the mind of Christ. Now, you don't love somebody that you don't want to spend time with and you don't want to learn how they think. If you look across at, don't do this, while just play poker while I'm talking. You look across at your husband or your wife, and if you don't care about how they think, you don't love them. I mean, love has to do with wanting to know all you can about that person. You want to know how they think, why they think the way they think, what they like, what they dislike. You want to be able to please them. That's all part of love. Well, the only way that you can love God and demonstrate a knowledge of who he is and his value system so that you can live in a way that pleases him is to know how he thinks. And to know how he thinks, you have to know his word. And the only way you're going to know his word is by being involved in a consistent, dedicated, systematic study of the word of God where it is a priority in your life over and above every other priority in life. Those who love God love his word, and to love his word means you have to learn his word. It involves discipline, it involves concentration, and it involves making it a priority and avoiding all distractions. Point number six, as we learn God's word, 
we learn to love God, as we learn God's Word and apply God's Word in our life, our love for God grows and strengthens. As we learn God's Word and apply His Word in our life, our love for God grows and strengthens. John 14:23, which I covered already. John 15:10, Jesus said, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. That's fellowship. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. But Jesus was never out of fellowship. 1 John 2, 5. John states in this epistle, Whoever keeps His word in Him the love for God has truly been brought to completion, truly been matured. It's translated perfected, which is a bad translation. It's from the Greek verb we've studied many times, teleao, meaning to, to bring to maturity. And that in, emphasizes the growth process of love. It doesn't happen automatically at salvation, and it takes time to develop, and that time has to be time devoted to the study of His Word. First John 4.12, we read, No one has beheld God at any time. No one has ever seen God. Moses didn't see God. Noah didn't see God, not God the Father. Uh, no one in the Old Testament saw God the Father. In, in, in John chapter 1, verse 14, we realize that, that in all those appearances of God in the Old Testament were really pre-incarnate, or the appearances of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, whose role it is to reveal God. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. Well, Jesus ascended to heaven where he now sits at the right hand of God the Father. When the physical body of Christ ascended to heaven, it was replaced on the earth by the corporate body of Christ, that is, all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not a physical entity, not just Preston City Bible Church, not any other church, not First Baptist Church, Second Baptist Church, Tenth Presbyterian Church, or whatever. It is every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ makes up the body of Christ. We represent Christ to the world. So by looking at mature believers, the world can come to understand what love is. And that's the point of 1 John 4.12. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, then God abides in us and his love is brought to maturity in us. And that's how people see what that love is. 1 John 4.16. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And there we have the emphasis that that abiding in God, or fellowship with God, goes hand in hand with loving God and loving one another. So if you're not loving one another, which John clearly recognizes in 1 John, there are believers who hate their brother. If they're not believers, it's not their brother. Only other believers are brothers in Christ, are members of the royal family of God. Uh, you are not, God is not your father unless you trust Christ as your savior. The scripture make it clear. In fact, Jesus told the Pharisees that they were of their father, the devil. So God is not your father except in a generic sense of creator, but he is not a personal father. You're not in the family of God. Scripture says, until you put your faith alone in Christ alone, that's when you're born again and adopted into the family of God. First John 4.16, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. The one who abides in love abides in God. So point number six, 
as we learn God's Word and apply God's Word, our fellowship with God, our abiding with God, grows and strengthens. Point number, I think I got off somewhere, point number uh, six should have been those who love God love His Word. That's point six. Point seven, as we love God's Word, we, uh, excuse me, point number seven is we, is the one I just covered, we apply God, as we learn and apply God's Word, our love for God increases, our fellowship with God grows and strengthens. Point number eight, then, love therefore represents the believer who has advanced to spiritual adulthood because he is abiding with God. It is only in that state of abiding, when we are filled with the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, that that love that the Spirit alone produces in us is manifested. Point number nine, love for God develops from our knowledge of Bible doctrine. It doesn't develop any other way. God the Holy Spirit produces that. As we take in the Word and apply it and walk by the Spirit, then God the Holy Spirit is the one who produces that in us. He produces that as a fruit. It's not manufactured. Because it is a, it is the unique distinguishing mark of the disciple, it is not something that can be naturally generated. This kind of love for other believers is something that is radically different from anything that an unbeliever can produce. Point number ten. Love for God then motivates love for other believers, and that is why uh, John can say that the, the one Back in uh, 420 and 21, if someone says they love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. So there is a, a an intricate and intimate relationship between loving God and loving other believers. And, the, and this is point 11, that impersonal love, and the reason I use the term impersonal love is to emphasize the fact that you don't have to know the person. It's not impersonal, not in the sense of something that's cold or calculated, but impersonal in the sense that you don't have to know this other person. You don't have to have a relationship with them. You may not even know their name, but you do know because... Uh, for, from, you may know from some other reason that they're a believer or assume they're a believer because you've seen them at church. You may see them on the other side of the church and not have a clue what their name is, but you can still treat them or deal with them in love. They may live, uh, they may be a believer, uh, operating in a church and some other part of the world suffering from a famine and maybe a local church is taking up a collection as they did in Acts in order to uh, help alleviate the suffering of some believers in another part of the world. See, that's a manifestation of love. The church in one place doesn't have, doesn't know, hasn't seen, doesn't know the names of the people who are uh, involved in this suffering or adversity. Nevertheless, they are uh, acting in love to help alleviate that particular suffering. So love does not necessitate or involve personal knowledge or personal relationship. So point number 11, impersonal love for other believers is the evidence that we truly love God. So that becomes a barometer for spiritual adulthood. Now in verse 3a, John says, For this is the love for God, that we keep His commandments. And then there is a break. This is a poor place to put to have split the verse. The verse really should be, 
should have split or the, the verse really should have broken in between these two sentences so that and his commandments are not burdensome should go with the next verse. The reason that you say that grammatically, you can almost see this in the English. Look at verse 4. Verse 4 begins, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. That English word for is the Greek word hati, which is an explanatory or causal uh, particle. In this case, it is a uh, a causal particle, and it is explaining the previous sentence and should be tied. There should not even be a sentence break between three the end of three and the beginning of four, the sentence should read, and his commandments are now burdensome because whatever is born of God overcomes the world. That is how the sentence should read. So that begins the next section, which focuses on the key word nikao, which means to have victory or to overcome, and its noun form nike in the Greek, which has been perverted into English as nike, so the next time you go by Nikes, you'll know that that's where that comes from. It's from the Greek goddess uh, for victory. And it is, uh, uh, according to the system of pronunciation I was taught in Greek, it should be pronounced uh, Nike. So whatever is born of God, Nikao, has victory over the world. And this is the Nike, the victory that has overcome the world, which is our faith. And here it's not talking about salvation, but the faith rest drill. And we'll come back and begin our study of that and how the believer has victory over the world next Sunday morning with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to once again think about, think profoundly about your love for us, especially as it was exemplified at the cross. You sent your Son, Jesus Christ, the eternal second person of the Trinity, to die on the cross as a substitute for our sins. There's nothing we could do to gain your favor, nothing we could do to gain your approbation because we were sinners and under condemnation of death. Yet you sent your son to take on our punishment on his, on himself on the cross, that he died spiritually on the cross as our substitute. He paid the penalty in full so that all that is left now is for us to either accept that or reject it, to accept it in full or reject it in full. And all that is necessary is for us to believe that Jesus died on the cross for us, that he solved the problem, he paid the price, he is our Savior, he alone. Nothing else is required, nothing else is necessary, anything else negates the principle of Christ alone. Father, we pray right now that if there's anyone here that's unsure of their eternal destiny, uncertain of their salvation, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. All you need to do right where you sit is to accept this free gift of salvation, to believe Jesus Christ died on the cross as your substitute. It's not a matter of good works. It's not a matter of moral reformation. It's not a matter of joining a church or being a member of a particular denomination. It's a matter of faith alone and Christ alone. Right now, you can make that clear. God, the Father, is omniscient. He knows what you are trusting for your salvation. And when you trust in Christ alone, you have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand the significance of biblical love and Christian love as it exemplifies our understanding of your character and is then demonstrated 
in our relationships with other believers. This is true reciprocal love. You initiated it in eternity past. We respond to it in our life today, and it is demonstrated in our relationships with other members of the royal family of God. We pray these things now in Christ's name. Amen.